The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Regular gum is boring, but Icebreaker's ice cubes are different. They're fancy. Icebreaker's gum has flavor crystals, which deliver a rush of cool, refreshing flavor. Plus, they are delightfully cube-shaped, making them soft and satisfying to chew. Icebreaker's ice cubes gum. Ooh, fancy. Pick up your favorite flavor today. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, Fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When the Victorians imagined the 21st century, what did they see? Well, picture the scene. In a world powered by the wonders of electricity... Smartly dressed men in impeccable suits whiz around on flying machines, get their food delivered electronically, dial into the opera and even whisk their wives off for a romantic honeymoon in space. Ewan Rees Morris's new book, How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon, explores the 19th century's grand ambitions in the realms of science and technology and their visions of how innovations, both real and imagined, would help them shape the future in their own image. I spoke to Ewan to find out more. Thank you so much for joining me today. The title of your book is How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon. And as far as I'm aware, anyway, the Victorians never made it to space. So can you explain the title to us? No, the Victorians didn't, so to speak, really take us into space. But they very much did take us into space in their imaginations. By the end of the 19th century, the new genre of scientific romance, what we would now call 
science fiction is really flourishing in, in books and popular magazines. We've forgotten the names of most of these authors now. Everybody remembers H.G. Wells, but H.G. You know, Wells was just one of one of many, and in a lot of ways his success depended on others. And travel into space, travel to the moon, is very much a part of that. Um, so it's very much in the kind of in, in the Victorian imagination, and in a way that's different to past stories about going to the moon. Authors have written and speculated about flying into space you know, since the 17th century or, or even earlier. But when somebody like the Bishop of Chester or whoever talks about flying to the moon, it's flying up there on a, char- on a chariot pulled by geese or something like that. The travel isn't really the point of it. These, those sorts of stories are typically utopian tales and they've just simply chosen to put their utopia on the moon. You know, the, the getting there isn't really something that concerns them. For the Victorians, on the other hand, the getting there really did concern them. They try and imagine what seemed to them at least to be plausible technologies, usually though not invariably involving electricity. You know, electricity is the future as far as they're concerned. And they were confident as well that this is something that was going to happen when right about the end of the 19th century you, know, you get lots of newspaper and magazine articles around about you know, what's it going to be like in a hundred years what's it going to be like at the end of the next century and it's a given everybody thinks that they will be on the moon routinely so to speak on the moon within within the century so that's one reason no they didn't get there really but they got there in fantasy and i think it's a fantasy that's consequential for the actual moon landings, if you like. When we eventually did get there in 1969, one of the reasons we did that, one of the reasons we really did go to the moon at the end of the 1960s was, so to speak, to fulfil a dream, a fantasy, a kind of a, a technological ambition that has its origins with the Victorians. So in that sense, yes, they did take us to the moon. This idea of Victorians visions of the future is fascinating to me. In the book, you delve into this in in detail. How would you characterise a Victorian vision of the future? What did they think would be happening in, say, the year 2000? I mean, one of the things that's interesting, at least I think, about Victorian futures is that in lots of ways, I mean, the Victorians invent the way of thinking about the future that we still think about the future with. And Victorian futures are overwhelmingly technological. Science and technology for the Victorians are going to be the tools that they are going to use to get to a future that's different from today, a kind of different, a different tomorrow. As I mentioned earlier, these futures are overwhelmingly electrical. I mean, it's quite interesting to note that within a decade, say, of the Rainhill Trials, when Stevenson and his rocket established steam locomotion as this is this is what's going to be on the railways. Within about a decade, you get people saying, steam, old hat, that's the past. We're going to be travelling on electric locomotives. We're going to be sending electric boats back and forth across the Atlantic. And there are going to be electric flying machines in the sky. Because, I mean, that's the other real Victorian future obsession. If I had to sum up the Victorian future in just a couple of words, it would be electricity and flying machines. I mean, that's what they, that's what they populate their future with. You, know, you travel in 
electric cars, you fly around in electrical flying machines, you pick up a phone to order your supper that is then electrically delivered to you. That that doesn't sound too different to the world that we're living in today. Do you think they had a fairly accurate vision of what was to come? It's kind of accurate in a sort of sideways way. I mean, and yes, there are, there are, there are clearly resonances. I mean, it'd be very easy to say, oh, the Victorians imagined the internet, uh, except they don't really, insofar as they imagine things like that. Looking back, they look far more steampunk than our, than our actual technologies, Not unsurprisingly, since steampunk is all about those sorts of imagined technologies. You know, if, yeah, if you want to go to the opera, say, in these, these imagined futures, you don't actually go to the opera. Again, you pick up your telephone and you dial up the opera, which is actually something that did happen in the late 19th century at one, at one, of, the, at one of the Parisian international exhibitions. You know, they had telephone lines set up connecting the exhibition to the Paris Opera House so that, yes, indeed, you could be in the exhibition and, and listen. And, of course, in the Victorian imagination, you, know, you, can, you can watch as well. Alexander Graham Bell invents patents, the telephone, in 1876. It's put on show at the Grand Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia later that year, which is when it's you know, put before the public starts becoming popular. Within a year, you have people speculating that if you can send sound down a wire, shouldn't you be able to send sight, send vision down the wire as well? So people start talking about this wonderful new invention called the telectroscope, which is always on the verge of being invented, I mean, really, for the, you know, for the two final decades of the 19th century. There's this amazing cartoon in your book from Punch magazine of two Victorian parents sat in armchairs watching, essentially, what is kind of like a live stream in which their children are in Sri Lanka playing tennis and they're just watching from the comfort of their own homes. They're essentially imagining a, a video stream, aren't they? That's what it. That's what it would seem to be to us. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's a, it's a fabulous cartoon. The cartoonist was George de Maurier. He's actually an ancestor of the novelist Daphne de Maurier. And yeah, I mean, he's picturing this kind of cozy scene where the technology is sort of part of everyday Victorian middle class, emphasising middle class life. But it's also, I think, very revealing and tells us a lot about what these sorts of technologies meant and what they were embedded in, if you like, more, more generally for the Victorians. Now, as you just said, the parents are there at home, the telectroscope is there over the mantelpiece, and their children are out in the colonies at the edges of empire. This is all part of a thoroughly imperial culture. And in all sorts of ways, the new kind of science and technology that the Victorians invented was thoroughly imbued with empire. And in all sorts of ways, the futures that you know, the Victorians imagined that the, that the new science and technology was, was going to get them to. It's an imperial fantasy in all sorts of ways. And I think that, you know, that cartoon captures that wonderfully, I think. And something related to that that you highlight in the book is that this field of science in this era, it is, like you say, a very narrow cross-section of Victorian society who are involved in this world. 
as you say, middle class, white and overwhelmingly male. How important was that fact in these futures that they imagined? It's absolutely central to those to those sorts of futures. There's a well, what ended up as a novel by you know, one of these now unknown scientific romances called George Griffith, who is himself an absolutely fascinating character. It first appeared as these things did in a kind of series in a in a popular you know, middle class magazine, and it literally describes the honeymoon in space. You know, the, you know, the, the main protagonist has has married, so he and his wife and their butler, if I remember rightly, set off into space for their adventure. It's a very male adventure. They start off on the moon, find the remains of a dying civilization, or they, you know, they find the skeletal remains of, of the giants used to inhabit the moon. They go on to Mars. Everybody at this period knows that Mars, at any rate, is, is certainly inhabited. They find on Mars the remnants of a, of a degenerated culture, fallen from the height of civilization. So their obvious response is to start shooting, for example. They move on to the other planets, and they speculate about you know, how the highly civilized inhabitants of the further planets arrived at the state that they, that, that they were in by eugenics, for example. So it's kind of all bound up in you know, ideas about you know, the preservation of the white race, the colonization of space, you know, the turning of space of, of other planets into, into colonial playgrounds for you know, people like them in all kinds of ways. So, I mean, I think they're fascinating future visions and they're fascinating future visions that tell us a great deal about the people who did that imagining. It's, it's a white future. I mean, it's absolutely explicitly a white future. It's a middle-class future. It's a future within which, however much technologies might change, the kind of typical gender relationship is very much how the late 19th century might regard you know, proper gender relationship. And, you know, around about 1900, you get a lot of people producing illustrations of you know, what's life going to be like in the year 2000. That's had lots of electricity, lots of flying machines. That's what's going to be in that life. And you know, in these illustrations, you see the inhabitants of the year 2000 wandering around. And it takes you a while, or at least it took me a while, for it to click. There's something interesting about the way that the, that the humans in the illustrations were, were portrayed. The insides were so mundane that, you know, as I said, it took me a while to clock. Everything else is different, but the humans are the same. They're all dressed in late 19th century middle-class fashion. So it's literally, it's them in the future. I mean, that's what's being portrayed in these sorts of images. And that's how I think the Victorians imagined the future. It was going to be a future that was technologically different and exciting and innovative in all sorts of ways, but it was going to be people like them in it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But the electricity that's imagined in the Victorian future, on the other hand, is often imagined as being produced by wind, by water, generated directly from the powers of nature. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Regular gum is boring, but Icebreaker's ice cubes are different. They're fancy. Icebreaker's gum has flavor crystals, which deliver a rush of cool, refreshing flavor. Plus, they are delightfully cube-shaped making them soft and satisfying to chew. Icebreaker's Ice Cubes Gum. Ooh, fancy. Pick up your favorite flavor today. And so the Victorians had these really radical visions of the future, but there were scientific revolutions within their own time that I think it's fair to say really did transform society. What do you think were some of the most dramatic transformations in science in this era? There's no question at all in my mind. Uh, it's the telegraph. I mean, if, I mean, if one thinks for a second about what the telegraph represented and the kind of successor technologies of the telegraph, I mean, the telephone in the, in the 1870s and then right at the end of the, of the 19th century, wireless telegraphy, you know, what we would call radio. Think about communication. Think about information. Say you're alive in 1800. You want to send a message from London to Dublin, which is actually something that they wanted to do quite often at the beginning of the 19th century. How long is it going to take you to get that message from London to Dublin? Essentially, it's going to take you as long as it would take you to go there because the message will be probably carried by somebody on a horse or in a carriage It'll get to Holyhead. It will be taken by boat across the Irish Sea. So it takes a while. In 1837, the the electromagnetic telegraph is patented. Now, obviously, they didn't get the telegraph to (laughs) across the Irish Sea. Well, they did that in the 1850s. But once you have that, then how long does it take to to send a message from, from London to Dublin? It hardly takes any time at all. It's a matter of seconds. In 1866 after a couple of failed efforts, they succeed in laying the Atlantic cable, a telegraph cable across the Atlantic. So all of a sudden, messages that have taken days, weeks, to travel from Liverpool to New York would now happen pretty much instantaneously. And that has a huge, huge impact, I think, on Victorian culture. It changes the ways in which they think, literally think, about space and time. Because, for, I mean, for a start, the thing that everybody knows, which is that the time is different in different places, is now visible. You know, there's a, there, you know, there's a newspaper story 
published, I think, right about the mid-1840s, where the telegraph is still very, very new. Isambard Kingdom Brunel was laying a telegraph line, basically along the Great Western Railway as it was stretching westward out out of London. And it had got as far as Slough. The telegraph operator at Paddington sends, at midnight, sends a message to his fellow operator at Slough saying, Happy New Year! Dot, 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 whatever. And, of course, quick as a button, the slough operator telegraphs, I said, what do you mean? It's, it's not New Year here yet. So it makes them think differently about time. You know, there's a famous murder in Slough, as it happens, in 1845. The murderer got onto a train, fled back to London, where under previous circumstances they would have disappeared into the underworld and would have been safe. Except, of course, they were seen getting on the train, the telegraph operator telegraphed ahead, so the police were waiting. You know, that's novel, that's new, that's, that's revolutionary. And again, I mean, it's a technology that's entirely wound up with empire in at least two ways. I mean, if one just thinks about what these telegraph networks that quickly come to span the world during the second half of the 19th century, what are they made of? They're made out of materials that you need an empire to acquire. You know, they're made out of copper. Even more important, you know, they're made out of a substance called gutta percha, which is the stuff that Victorians used to insulate and undersea cables. Gutta percha is made out of the sap of a tree that grows in Southeast Asia. So you, know, you need access to huge quantities of that stuff to, you know, to get your telegraph going. So it's kind of drawing in and exploiting resources of empire you know, to create these new technologies. And the technology is meant to control the empire. By the final decades of the 19th century, Britain dominates underwater telegraph industry. And it's a vital imperial kind of policy aim, really, to have and maintain what they call the all-red route. The all-red route is a network of telegraphs that only passes either under the sea, which is thoroughly under British control, or through British imperial territory. Yeah, that it never crosses potentially hostile territory, which at this stage essentially means Russia. So it's a way of controlling the empire. It's a way of making sure that the imperial centre knows what's going on out there in, in the peripheries. And keeping that safe for Britain is a kind of vital imperial, imperial interest. So, yeah, so this is all imperial. And I think it's very important to remember that when we look back at, at all of this. Earlier, you said that the Victorians' visions of the future were all about electricity and flying machines, essentially. But I think if you looked at our visions of the future today, a big component of that would be computing, so things like AI. Of course, the 19th century did see early innovations in computing. How significant do you think that they were in laying the groundwork for the world that we we see today, which is so dominated by computing? I mean, in lots of ways, sadly, possibly. Very little. Charles Babbage invents or starts speculating about his calculating engines right at the beginning of the, of the 1820s, starts building his difference engine, never gets finished, partially because he fell out with his mechanics and partially because he started thinking about the next stage, the analytical machine that was going to be even more sophisticated. And again, I mean, never, never built. But is a key element then in the way that Victorians think about the possibilities of automating, of mechanising calculation. 
calculations produce things like tables for navigational and astronomical purposes at the beginning of the 19th century are done by a computer. A computer is a, a, computer is a boy, essentially. You know, early 19th century computers are humans. They're typically teenagers, people in their early 20s, who do the kind of repetitive arithmetical labor, laborious stuff. And what Babbage wants to do, that's what the, the calculating engine is for, is to, is to get rid of that mental labor, get rid of that human mental labor, in pretty much the same way that the inventors of kind of mechanical looms are doing that in order to get rid of the human labor involved in those sorts of processes as well. And increasingly during the 19th century, you, you need ways of dealing with numbers, of dealing with information in vast quantities. Because again, you have an empire to rule or you have increasingly large industrial concerns to manage. So you need machines to manage numbers to do that successfully. So yes, I mean, increasingly in the second half of the 19th century, you know, Babbage's engine is never built. But you, know, you start getting arithmometers, comptometers, you know, different sorts of mechanical devices that are used to deal with these vast quantities of numbers. Um, and again, I mean, you get Victorians fantasizing about you know, taking it all that one step further, what if you could put a mechanical brain inside a human being? So there's a brilliant short story that features exactly that, and it's telling that the man with a mechanical brain is a diplomat. You know, there's exactly somebody who needs to be in command of all of those numbers. People often point out these days that kind of putative AIs are often portrayed as female. Well, more often than not, that's how the Victorians portrayed automated humans as well. Now, so you get short stories with accounts of you know, making the perfect woman out, out of machinery, and then, of course, everything going hideously and horribly wrong in various ways. So it's an important part of Victorian imaginary. But, I mean, the kinds of electronic computers that started to be developed, I mean, really from the 1940s, 1950s onwards, they work an entirely different way. They're a different technology. The underlying framework, you know, the mathematics. You know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's not Babbage's world. Another of the biggest questions in innovation at the moment is, of course, how we can move forward without further damaging the environment. Are there any lessons that we could take from the Victorians for visions of a renewable future? Because I think traditionally the Victorians are written off as pretty terrible environmentalists. Yes, I mean, I mean the Victorians were intimately aware, I think, that their empire depended on, well, essentially depended on coal, primarily from the South Wales Valleys. And you know, they have concerns that, you know, they know that coal won't last forever, that coal will run out. And they're worried, for example, that, well, when the coal runs out, then so will the empire, because the empire depends on its, its energy resources. I mean, that's one of the things going on in the, in the fantasies of electricity, now, in real life, so to speak, when electrical systems start proliferating around at the end of the 19th century, electricity depends on coal and gas as much as, as much as steam. But the electricity that's imagined in the Victorian future, on the other hand, is often imagined as being produced by wind, by water, generated directly from the powers of nature. There's a brilliant novel well, actually, it's an appalling novel, but it's brilliant in all sorts of ways. Written in 1894 by, of all people, John Jacob Astor. That's Astor as in you know, Astor, 
extremely large amounts of money. Kind of, you know, Amer- American tycoon, owner, amongst other things, of the, of the Waldorf Astoria in New, New York. A decade or so later, would have the misfortune of being the richest man to die in the Titanic, but he didn't know that then. He writes this novel, A Journey Into Space, and it's fascinating. Again, it's set in the year 2000. It gives a kind of potted history of how the 20th century went and went in such a way that the world of 2000 was dominated by two English-speaking empires, one in North America and one built around, built around Britain. And he describes the energy, you know, where they get their power from. It's all electricity, and it's all electricity generated by windmills, by waterfalls, by capturing lightning from electricity from lightning in huge batteries and the like. And of course, when they head off into space on what's almost literally a, a safari to the planets, because they shoot everything they see, pretty much, that flying machine is powered by electricity as well. So yes, the future that they imagine is a future where they have ultimate command of the forces of nature, that they can get nature directly power their machines, which on the one hand sounds great. I mean, yes, would that we had that kind kind of future now. But let's not fool ourselves that the Victorians were imagining these futures because they had anything even remotely resembling you know, our environmental concerns. Now, that just simply seemed to them to be the way to do this, so to speak. Now, they knew the coal, for example, was going to be gone. So they needed to imagine other ways of, of powering their fantastic futures. A lot of what we do now in terms of how we think about the future, in terms of how we think about science and technology and who does it and who it belongs to, still carries with it those Victorian values. Well, one of the things the Victorians did was change the ways the things had been done before. You know, they invented a new kind of way of doing science, a new kind of way of thinking about technology. And new ways of imagining the future. Well, if they did that, then we can too. We're not just stuck with what we have. Now, we can be like the Victorians and think about new ways of doing what's needed to, well, frankly, save our planet. Was there a damaging legacy that the Victorians' obsession with progress and innovation left us with? So I'm thinking, you know, of our reliance on fo- fossil fuels, for example. I mean, it's interesting that the Victorians never imagined oil, so to speak. Well, they did imagine the 20th century as, a, as an electrical century. Well, it wasn't. It was, it was, it was a century that ran entirely on oil. So that was something they didn't, did, didn't see coming, so to speak. But yes, I, mean, I think in all sorts of ways, I mean, the legacy of over-industrialization, the, the, the legacy of environmental dis- dis- destruction that we need to find ways of, of dealing with are absolutely a legacy of of that of that kind of entanglement of science and technology with with imperial ideology. You know, that you know, that sense of the world was there to provide them with the resources you know, that they needed for their empire. But I do have one final question for you, a slightly more silly one. If you took some of these Victorian innovators and you plopped them into the world that we live in today, what do you think they would have made of all the innovations? I do actually think about that periodically. You know, what would they do? Their jaws would certainly drop. I mean, what would they make of cars? 
I mean, what would they make of... We know what they make of, of televisions and what we're doing. Oh, yes, it's, it's a telectroscope. You know, we, we knew that was coming. I think that they would recognise some elements. Other elements of our, of our technological presence, I suspect, they would not understand at all. Um, would just simply not make, you know, not make sense to them, I think. That was Ewan Rees-Morris. His book, How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon, is out now, published by Icon. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 